46. We're going to look at eventually. Uh, I'm going to get there, but just kind of put it to the side, hold on to it, and we'll get there. I, I love singing. I know every, not all people love singing, but I, I mean, I really, I love singing. I love song. I love music. I love art. Throughout history, whenever God has moved on his people, one of the for sure signs of a move of God is that there has been resulting songs that have broken out as a result. Because whenever God moves, people respond. And one of the ways we respond is through song. Let me give you just some biblical examples. When God brought his people out of Egypt, they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh's army got drowned behind them. And what did they do when they got to the other side? They broke out in song. The Song of Miriam is the recording of that in Exodus 15.1. When God gave Israel victory over their enemies under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, they sang, Judges 5. When David brought up the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, there was much joy expressed through singing, dance, and music. When they dedicated the temple under Solomon, uh, they started singing, and the, the singing was so great that the power of God fell in such a way they, uh, they had to quit singing. They couldn't even minister anymore because God's power moved so mightily upon them. When King Hezekiah rededicated the temple years later after the people had wandered away from the Lord and then come, came back, they, they sang the songs of David. At the conclusion of the Lord's Supper, before they went out for prayer to the Garden of Gethsemane, they sang a hymn. When Paul and Silas were unjustly put in prison, they sang. Throughout our history, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been and are a people of song. In A.D. 112, Pliny wrote to the Emperor Trajan that reported, among other things, that the Christians, one of the characteristics of Christians in the first century was that they sang songs to Christ as God. In 1415, the Bohemian Brethren under John Huss sang praises to God as he was burned at the stake. While he's being burned, he begins to sing praises to God. During the Reformation, we're going to look at this a little later, more in depth, Martin Luther promoted music in the church. century and a half later, the Pietist movement under Spainer and Franck was characterized by singing and hymn writing. All the great revivals, the revivals under Wesley in the 1800s and Moody and Sankey in the 1900s, the Jesus movement of the 1960s, every move of God has been characterized by a distinctive style of music and singing. We're in large part a result of the 1960s and 70s Jesus movement and the types of songs that we sing come out of that. One day, In heaven, when we are all gathered around the throne of God, we'll be singing. Get used to it. We are a people of song. I've been in services before. I remember uh, when I was in seminary and we would gather for a chapel and we would, um, there'd be a time of singing of hymns. I mean, I, I could, the power of God was so present in the move of people singing with all of their voice before God that I couldn't sing. 
I remember going to Promise Keepers a couple of times where the sound in the dome was so moving of 10,000 men singing praises to God that I was overwhelmed emotionally. We love music. I, I love music. Much of my life has been given to the study of music and especially its relationship to worship. It's therefore really ironic that I've never preached from the Psalms. Uh, it's, it's ironic that in 22 years of being a pastor, I've preached various Psalms, but I've never preached through the Psalms. Because the Psalms is, for all practical purpose, a collection of hymns. It is a collection of songs. But that in itself is one of the reasons that makes it so difficult to preach through. There's no story, there's no line. It's like taking a hymn book and trying to preach through a hymn book. So what I'm going to do this summer is I'm going to preach through selected psalms to give us an overview of how we can read the psalms. See, I believe that one of my roles as pastor is, I I think I have many hats as a pastor. I, I believe that one of my hats is to encourage you. One of my hats is to help inspire you. One of my hats is to help get you into the presence of God so that he can touch your life in a mighty way because he can do you know, a much better job than I can in all of these things. But one of the things that's part of my job is to equip you to read God's word so that when you read it, you can kind of put it in context. You can hear from the spirit of God. He can move in your, in, in your life and in your heart. So this summer, we're going to spend looking at the Psalms. We're going to do 12 weeks starting today. It's going to be a summer of songs. I, I'm, I'm very excited about it. You may not be as pumped as me, but I love psalms. I love music. And so we're going to enjoy our time together, I hope, looking at the psalms. Now, having said that, let me just say that today I, I'm going to do uh, more teaching than I would normally do on a Sunday morning because I, I, want, you to, I, I want to give us an overview of what the Psalms looks like and what's its purpose so that you can kind of put in context what we're going to be doing for the rest of the summer. And that when you read the Psalms, when you read it on a daily basis, you'll have some sort of kind of hook to hang things upon. As I said, the Psalms is a book of hymn books. Now, I have a whole collection of hymn books. Um, This is the uh, 1975 Baptist hymnal. There are a bunch of them, the 56 hymnal, 75 hymnal, 92 hymnal. There are a bunch of different Baptist hymnals. For those of you who are under the age of 30 and have never seen a hymnal before, this is what it looks like. This is a hymnal. You're used to seeing words on a screen, but in my day, uh, we use this. Um, It had the words and the music into it, and the minister of music would say, turn to page number 320. Oh, God of every time and place. Uh, that would be the hymnal, and you'd sing the hymn together. Uh, there are older hymnals. This is one of the older ones I have. It's called Majestic Hymns. This is published in the early 1900s. This is what's called Shaped Note Hymnal. Uh, anybody know what a Shaped Note Hymnal is? Y'all are old. If you know what a Shaped Note Hymnal is, you're old. The, 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 it's what it says it is. The notes are shaped it's based on the solfege system, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. So those of you who are from, uh, remember the sound of music, and that's all you know about the solfege system, that's what the basis of that is. For those of you who I'm speaking in tongues, don't worry about it, I won't stay there long. This is the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, this is the, the hymn book 
and prayer book of the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church. And in some ways, it's more like what the, the Psalms are because there's no music at all published in the Book of Common Prayer for this version of it. It's just the hymns are to be said in prayer. Now, imagine for yourself, imagine for yourself that 2,000 years from now, somebody uncovers the words to 10,000 reasons that we just sang. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. But that's all they've got is the words. Uh, 2,000 years from now, and they say, what do these people, what do the Christians of the 21st century sing? They'll uncover these words, but the one thing they won't have is what? If they look at it like we've got it here, they won't have the tune. The Psalms is a book of hymns. Now, hymns are the words, not the music. It's just the poetry, the words. When someone says a hymn, it is actually the words and not the hymn tune that's indicated. So what we have in the Psalms is poetry or hymns of 2,000 years ago that we don't have the tunes to. And one of the challenges we have also is that we're at least one language away from what it was originally published in. So they were originally in Hebrew, then moved to Greek, and then to eventually English, although many of our translations try to go back to the Hebrew version to give us a more accurate understanding of the, what the words mean. But think about taking 10,000 reasons, publishing it in two different languages, and not having the hymn tune, the music to it to give us an idea of you understand the complications that involve and how we at times lose the impact and yet the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any of his benefits. I mean, even, even translated twice over, the words of the Psalms, both in great times and horrible times, they stick with our, with our heart and our soul. Let me give you some fun facts about the book of Psalms, which you probably already know for your trivia things for the future. It is the longest book in the Bible, just shy of 44,000 words. That's why I'm taking selected Psalms and not preaching through all 150 of them. It has the most chapters of any book of the Bible, 150. It has the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, you may not know this, it also has the shortest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 117 has two verses. By the way, I'm not preaching that one. I know that many of you probably want to come that Sunday where I'm preaching the two verses. (laughs) It has more authors than any other book in the Bible, at least eight and probably more. We just don't know all of the authors, but at least eight are identified It is the longest writing project of any of the books of the Bible. It starts with Moses and goes all the way up until about 444. So it goes from 1400 B.C. to about 400 B.C. So it's about a thousand years of a collection of songs. You may not know this. It is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Of some 360 Old Testament quotes, 112 are from the Psalms. It's the most quoted book by Jesus. He quoted the Psalms more than any other book. It has more messianic prophecies revealing the Son of God than any other New Testament book. 
It is a very significant book in the Bible. The word psalm, by the way, is a Greek word that means a song that's to be accompanied by a string instrument. It's not just song. It's a specific type of song, a song that is to have some sort of string accompaniment. It comes from the Hebrew word tehillim, which just means praise or song. The Psalms are arranged into actually, there are actually five different books within the book of Psalms. Book one uh, is chapters 1 through 41. It's compiled by David or Solomon. By the way, uh, there's a lot of information I'm giving you here, and I gave you an entire handout in your bulletin so that you can put in your Bible and hopefully take with you. So if you don't want to take notes for a moment, for those of you who are note takers, just put this in your Bible. You can read it later. But these five books are actually, they were compiled over the thousand year period. And then around 444 BC, they were put into one book that we know as the Psalms. So these five books were compiled at different times and by different people and then eventually came together as what we know of as the Psalms. Book one was compiled by either David or Solomon. Book two, uh, chapters 42 through 72, were probably compiled by Solomon or uh, by people after Solomon. There's a title or phrase, the men of Hezekiah put these together. Uh, Psalm, uh, book three, Psalm 73 through 89, was compiled by the men of Hezekiah, 90 through 106, was added by Ezra, 107 through 115, was probably added by Ezra when Israel returned from the land after the Babylonian captivity. So you can see over a long period of time, the five books of the Psalms were developed. Um, Each book of the Psalm, by the way, ends with a doxology. Are, Are you having as much fun as I am at this point? You're enthralled, aren't you? But at the end of each book, there is a, there's a doxology. For, the in, for instance, at the end of Psalm 41, um, which is the end of book one, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So at the end of every one of these five books, there's a doxology, which is a, a statement of praise and blessing to God. And then at the end of the book, Psalm 150 serves as a final doxology for the entire entire book. No one really knows what the flow of the five books or why they're put in the order that they are. A lot of people speculate that books one and two are about the monarchy, the establishment of the monarchy and things that happened as a result of David and of Solomon, that book three reflects the failure of the monarchy. There's a lot of sadness in book three. Books four and five present the restoration and hope for the future with the Lord as king. Books four and five have a lot of the messianic prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the hope that's found in the Messiah, which we know is the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. The earliest identified author is Moses, um, Psalm 90, it says, was written by Moses. More than half of the Psalms are identified as being written by David, and we have a number of other authors that are given in the titles. By the way, a couple of notes about the book of Psalms. 
the titles that are in there are actually a part of the hymn book. They're a part of the Bible. They're, they're the inspired words of God. They're not added notations like a commentary. As a matter of fact, when it says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, which is what it says in Psalm 3. If you were to look at Psalm 3, it begins with a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. That's actually in the psalm book. It's in the Psalms. And in fact, in the Hebrew, that would be verse 1. Now, we put it as a subscript to the title, Psalm 3, but the Hebrew Bible would put it verse 1. So many of the Psalms are versed different in the Hebrew Bible than they are in our Bible. But as a result of these titles, we know this. David wrote at least 73 Psalms. Uh, probably some more because in Acts and Hebrews, we learn uh, that he wrote some other psalms. Um, the sons of Asaph and his descendants wrote 12 psalms. Those are identified and clearly titled. The sons of Korah wrote at least 10 psalms. Solomon wrote two psalms. Ethan the Ezraite one wrote at least one. I'm just giving you some of the examples. Moses wrote one as well. Some of the psalm titles indicate um, are, are terms that designate the type of psalm that it is. So you have psalm titles. So you, it, for instance, you'll have a psalm, which call, is called a psalm. I know that seems a little bit ironic, but uh, they have different musical designations. So a psalm, again, the word psalm means um, a song that's to be accompanied by a stringed instrument. There is uh, the title song in some of the psalms which indicates a joyful melody. Maskal may refer to a contemplative or didactic. Didactic means teaching psalm. So it's either a reflective or a teaching kind of psalm. Um, Miktam, no one really knows what that word means. Uh, There's some speculation about what kind of musical designation it is, but we really don't know. Some psalms are called prayers. Some psalms, um, like Psalm 145, has the title of praise, and we're going to look at that psalm later on. Uh, Fifty psalms are addressed for the choir director, for the choir director, and then you have other notations that describe the kind of instrument that's to be played or the tune that's to be sung. There are titles that instruct us as worshipers. For instance, Psalm 92 says it's for the Sabbath day. Psalm 100 is for Thanksgiving. Psalm 120 through 24, 34 are labeled the songs of ascent. They're the the songs that the people sang as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship. By the way, the the word Selah, uh, S-E-L-A-H, is a musical designation. I mean, it means peace in some ways, but it also, in the way that it's indicated in the Psalms, is a musical designation, which means to pause or to wait. So when you come to that phrase, so in the music, when they were singing, they'd come, they'd pause, and then they'd move forward. It's not to be read. Uh, So when you're reading through the Psalm, you don't have to say, Selah. So you'll see in Psalm 46 that we're reading today, it's at least two different places, maybe three, I can't remember, but at least two different places in the psalm which indicates some sort of division between what has been sung and what's supposed to be sung after that. I'm not even going to get into, and 
Somebody say amen, praise God. Uh, I'm not even going to get into all the different types of poetry that are indicated in the Psalms. Uh, There's many different kinds of parallelism. Uh, There's types of, and you say, oh, well, if you're not going to get into it, why are you going now? Um, there There are acrostics, there's alliteration, much of what, much of which we lose because we don't know Hebrew. Uh, we are not in the Hebrew, but for instance, Psalm 119 goes through, the reason it's so long, it goes through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all the way down, and a different letter begins a different section, then begins a different section, begins a different section. I've given you all this information in that little handout, plus I gave you a division of the Psalms so that as you read through the Psalms, it'll give you an idea of what type of psalm psalm it is. So I hope you'll find that helpful, and maybe you've learned some stuff about the psalms. But again, my, my purpose is to help equip you so that when you look at the psalms, you just don't jump into Psalm 140 and not know where you are in the overall look of the psalm, type of the psalm, what's being said, what's being done. Regardless... With all of this in mind, what I want to talk to you today about is the power of the song. The power of the song. On October 31st, 1517, anybody name that date? There you go. Martin Luther, thank you to him. Um, Martin Luther began the Reformation. He nailed 95 theses or statements of faith on the door of the church in Germany, Wittenberg, Wittenberg, that he was a part of. Now, his goal was not to start an entirely new movement in the sense of the Catholic Church and a break-off from the Catholic Church. His goal was to reform the Roman Catholic Church of his era. He saw a lot of things that were, were out of whack, and so his goal was to reform Hence the term, the Reformation Movement. But uh, the church at the time didn't want to hear about Martin Luther's reforms. Eventually, they excommunicated him, um, kicked him out of the Catholic Church. And so he began an entirely new era of church life. Some really good things have come from it. Some really bad things have come from it. But nonetheless, uh, it, it, it's, like a, it's like a split, so to speak, in the river of church life. And one of the things that Luther really wanted to see as part of this Reformation movement was a restoration (laughs) Could y'all hear that? Sorry, uh... (laughs) <laughs> it's a wonder my kids love me as much as they as much as they do, huh? One of the key parts of the movement um, that Martin Luther was instituting was the restoration of public worship and especially especially the power of the song. Listen to some of the quotes of Luther: uh, "I have no pleasure in any man who despises music. It is no invention of ours; it is a gift of God." 
I place it next to theology. Satan hates music. He knows how it drives the evil spirit out of us. Or if you want to talk about some of the music we listen to today, maybe it puts the evil spirit in us. But he understood the power of music. He also said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. I also, this is one of my favorite, I just threw this in for fun. This is a a Martin Luther quote. He said, who loves not women, wine, and song remains a fool his whole life long. I don't know. We'll go with the song part uh, for for this morning. It's been claimed by many people over the years that Martin Luther boldly seized songs that were done in the taverns or the pubs of his day and uh, took the, the, the music part, reformed them, got them back, and uh, added Christian words to them so that people would sing them and remember them. It, it's hard to prove or disprove, and it's probably really overgeneralized that he did that. He did take at least one or two popular songs of his day that's well-documented and uh, put words to them so that the people uh, would sing songs of praise. Congregational singing had been halted since the early 4th century, by the way. Uh, The church in its entirety, as far as public worship, was not permitted to sing. As a matter of fact, from the 4th century on, it was declared, if laymen are not to interpret the scriptures, which is the position of the church in the 4th, 5th, and 6th century, if laymen are not to interpret the scriptures for themselves, so they are not to sing the songs of the church either. Singing songs, interpreting scripture, have been taken from uh, us, the lay church, and Martin Luther wanted to restore it. He declared, let God speak directly to his people through the scriptures and let his people respond with grateful songs of praise. Luther is mostly noted as a theologian, but he was also a musician. He played instruments, he sang, and he wrote songs as well. He also said, there is a root-like unity of music and theology. Music is wrapped and locked in theology. I would allow no man to preach or teach God's people who did not realize the power and use of sacred music. Martin Luther declared and taught basically that if he had to choose preaching or singing, he would take the singing because people's hearts are captured by song. And by what they sing, they then reveal what's in their heart. Now, he wasn't trying to minimize preaching. What he was trying to do was, remember, he was trying to elevate uh, the use of song in public worship, which had for a thousand years been taken from... Can you imagine trying to turn that train around? Trying to turn a thousand-year-old tradition of not singing into a tradition of singing? Luther's enemies often lamented, this is a quote, that the German people were singing singing themselves into Lutheran's doctrines, and that his hymns destroyed more souls than all of his writings and sermons. From that time to the present, singing, song, has been an integral part of the evangelical worship experience. 
Luther's first hymnal, by the way. He wrote hymns, was published in 1524. It contained eight hymns, four of which are written by himself. One of the hymns that becomes one of the great hallmarks of Christianity is based on Psalm 46. It's the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So what I want to do for just the remaining minutes, and by the way, this is probably the longest introduction to the eventual sermon you'll get. I want to look just for a second at Psalm 46 as an example of the power of song, as an intro to our understanding of the book of Psalms. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to divide it. It's divided into three sections. Therefore, I'm going to give you three points about the psalm and we're just going to look at it, and I want us to reflect on the power of the song. Then, at the end of the sermon outline for next week, I've given you the psalm that we're going to look at. I think it's what, Psalm 113? Is that the end of the bulletin? Psalm 113, and what I'm asking is that for the next week, you read this psalm every day, and that you meditate on it, so that when we come back to discuss it and look at it next week, you'll already have it kind of permeating in your, in your heart and in your life. So Psalm 46, this is uh, the breakdown of it. The first point is this, God is our refuge, we must not fear. God is our refuge, we must not fear. Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. You get the connection? God is our refuge and our strength. What have I got to fear? He's ever-present. He's all-powerful. Therefore, I will not fear. And then he gives some examples of things that we could fear about. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Though, though, basically, though the ground give way beneath us. Though things crumble all around us, God is our refuge and our strength. Therefore, what have we got to be afraid of? Amen? Fear just captures us. I mean, if, if, you, if you get afraid, it is hard to get rid of fear. Hello? Why? Because the more you think about getting rid of fear, the more it captures your thought and your heart. The more you actually think about it, the more you actually focus on it. How do you get rid of fear? The only way to get rid of fear is to focus on the greatness of God. That God is our refuge and our strength. And the psalmist is saying, even though everything else falls around us, I'm not going to be afraid. Here is how bad our thinking is when it comes to fear. And it's what the enemy just goes after us with. For many people, the greatest fear is the fear of public speaking, by the way. That's usually the number one fear of people. They fear public speaking more than they fear death. But death is like uh, close number two. Um, It always cracks me up. People would rather die than speak in public, you know. So um, anyway, but most of us fear death in some way. But the Bible says, look, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, what does death have to hold on us? 
I mean, death is just the next move into a greater understanding of the presence of God. So we fear, we fear dying. But then we're so screwed up that we fear not dying. We fear what may happen tomorrow. We fear that we may get sick. We fear we may lose our money. We fear, so at one point we're afraid to die and at another point we're afraid to live. Fear captures us and it robs us of all the joy of the moment. Last week I was struck by Tom Odepon who was giving a testimony about his wife going to a prayer meeting. Do you remember this testimony he gave last week where he was talking about Sushin going to a prayer meeting and how they came out and there was a kind of a group there threatening them that they didn't want them to meet there anymore or pray there anymore? I mean, what, what would we do if all of a sudden we walked out of the church and there was a mob out there saying to us, hey, you come back here and we're going to... Or what happens if the government does press in and rob us of the opportunity to worship. We, when it comes down to it, what, what have we really got to be afraid of? The point being this, God is our wreck. I mean, we all have at some level some measure of fear trying to creep its way into our hearts. Uh, if I don't do a good job, I'm going to lose my job. If I do do a good job, am I going to get enough money? If, 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 what, what happens if my kids go off the rails? What happens to, if one of my children dies while they're driving? What happens here or there? And these fears, they just jump on us from all different sides. The psalmist is saying, listen. God is our refuge and our strength. Let me flip this. If God is not your refuge and your strength, you've got a lot to be afraid of. You have no place to go. You have nothing to depend on. But because God is your refuge and your strength, what have I got to fear? Remember the story that Jesus, uh, where Jesus, the little boy, he... Let me back up just a little bit. I'm trying to talk too fast. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He finds his disciples trying to cast a demonic spirit out of a little boy who's throwing himself in the fire. And uh, Jesus basically says to the father, "What, what do you want? And the guy says to him, well, if you can, could you heal my boy? And Jesus says to him, if I can, and he goes, he says this, everything is possible for him who believes. And the father has one of the greatest statements that I lean on over and over and over and over again. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I do believe. I believe God is my refuge and my strength. But at those moments I don't believe, God, help me believe. I believe help my unbelief, which should be a constant prayer of ours to help encourage and push us forward in faith. I will not fear. God is my refuge and strength. Listen to the first verse of A Mighty Fortress that Luther wrote. A mighty fortress is our God, our bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. It's hard for me to say this without singing it. For still our ancient foe, the enemy, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But God is our mighty fortress. He is our God. 
God's our refuge. We must not fear. God is our strength. We must not fall. Verses uh, 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Amen? Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is our strength. God is within, according to the psalmist, God is within the city of God, and the city of God is actually within us. Therefore, the presence of God is within us. So many times, so many times, we feel weak and helpless and inadequate. I mean, what do you say to a young couple who's just, through death, lost a child? What do you say to a young wife who uh, is struggling in their marriage, thinking that perhaps her husband's cheating on her and wants to know what to do? What do you say when a family's lost a father due to a tragic accident? What do you say to people who, who believe they've heard from God, walk in it, and then all of a sudden tragedy unfolds, betrayal occurs, heartbreak ensues? There are no trite, simple answers. But the truth still remains. God is our strength. What are your options at that point? Well, you can give up. Or you can say, God is my strength. I will not fall. His power, his presence indwells me. You see, you are not strong enough in and of yourself to go through any of those circumstances or situations. You will struggle. You will fall. But when you lean into the presence and power, the fortress that is our God, you'll, you'll, you'll make it. In Philippians, it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the phrase I want you to see. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is at work within you. God is, God is at work within you. Therefore, you don't have anything to fear. For God didn't give you a spirit of fear, according to Timoth- Paul and Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1. He didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. We may be weak. But God's spirit within us is strong. Therefore, we get to stand. There's no reason to fall. Greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. Amen? Do you really believe that? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. God is our God. We must not fight. We must not fight. And by this, I mean we must not fight 
against God. Um, We do fight, but through his power and our strength against the works of the enemy. But God is our strength. Psalm 46 again, verses 8 through 11. Say, come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is only one God, and he's not me, and he's not you. Amen? Remember the movie Bruce Almighty? Well, we jumped theologies real quick, didn't we? A movie where uh, Jim Carrey is really mad at God and said, if I were God, I could do a much better job of this. God appears in the form of Morgan Freeman. Um, before he made the voiceovers to the Birmingham airport. But uh, Morgan Freeman comes to Jim Carrey and says to him, hey, you think you can do a better job? I'm going to go on vacation. You're God. And as a result, Jim Carrey gets to a point where he says, I, 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 can't, I can't do this. It's a stupid, silly movie. Except for many of us act like we are the center of the universe. Everything is perceived through us. Therefore, we think everything must be about us. And we many times look at God and we say, God, if I were God, I would treat me better. I would do things better. I would do things differently. And as a result, we enter into some sort of battle with God a battle of the wills, as it were, for my will to try and supersede his will. By the way, that's a losing battle. Be still and know that who's God? I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He is exalted, will always be exalted. Consequently, we need to stop playing God and instead join in with him with what he's doing on the earth. Every day you're confronted with decisions to make, things that you've got to do, thoughts to act on. And most of the time, rather than taking a step back and saying, God, what do you want me to do here? We choose to do what we want to do. Is it not worth it, you think, to be still and know that he's God? And to ask him in the decisions, great and small, God, what are you trying to accomplish here? What is it that you want to do? How can you use me as an instrument of righteousness in your hands? Rather than me trying to be happy and orchestrate the world around me for my happiness and gain, what can I do to be an instrument of power and righteousness in your hands? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? You see, what he's basically saying is, you can't. You can't. If he's Lord, that means he's the one in control giving the commands, right? And I do what he tells me to do. 
So if I say he's Lord and then go my own way, then I don't really mean that he is Lord. God is our God. and We must not fight against him by trying to do our own thing, but rather submit to his will and authority. He's got to win the battle. Did we, in our own strength, confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. God is God. God exists. God is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God, always has been, always will be. He is all-powerful, all-wise, ever-present, and has the right to command us. And he does command us. But at the same time, one of the great tensions is that he also gives us the choice in this life, rather to obey or to go our own way. He deeply loves all mankind, wants us to believe him and obey him out of response to his great love and to say amen to his plans and his purposes. If we respond to him in faith and love, we will not fear, we will not falter, will not fight with him, but will join in with his plans and purposes. Is this a great psalm? a way of living that if we really got our minds around the truth, it would change the way we live. I pray that as we look at these psalms together throughout the remainder of the summer, that we'll understand the greatness of God, the plans and purposes he has for us, the response of a people who are who are following after his name, will avoid the ditches that have been given in songs uh, to us. We'll, we'll, We'll sing songs of joy, songs of sadness, songs of thanksgiving, songs of wisdom. I'm looking forward to it. I pray you are as well. Listen to the final stanza of this great hymn. That word, remember that word that shall fell him, the enemy? That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, his kingdom, his kingdom is forever. Lord, I pray this morning. That we will, by your might, your power, your strength, your truth, your wisdom, your grace, that we will understand who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that we will will seize on the truth that you are our fortress, you are our strength, you're a mighty God. And Lord, I pray this morning that we will... We will understand that there is power in song. That we will sing songs of praise. And that we will rely on your truth. 
And as we do, we'll not falter, we won't fall, we won't fail, but we will join in with you. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we joy in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.